Eternal God, in the cross of Jesus, we see the cost of our sin and the depth of your love. In humble hope and reverence, may we place at his feet all that we have and all that we are, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good afternoon. The ultimate cost. Each year during Holy Week, we retrace the footsteps of Jesus from Palm Sunday to Easter Resurrection. We continue today with a focus on the cross. We adore you, O Christ, and we praise you because by your holy cross, you have redeemed the world. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is a very important scripture for us to understand if we want to understand what took place many years ago on the cross and what it means for us today. The basic idea in the sacrificial rituals of Leviticus is the idea that atonement for sin costs something. Something valuable has to be offered in restitution. The life of the animal sacrifice and a sense of all at the shedding of blood represents this payment. So this verse in Hebrews makes clear that atonement costs something. In Romans 5, Paul sums up the Christian message in the words that everyone should know because this is the heart and soul of the Christian message and what the death of Jesus Christ means for every human being. So here is another very important passage to understand. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The ungodly. Who are these ungodly people? We have only ungodly people here today. The ungodly people are you and me, along with Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Rebecca, Peter and Paul, Mary and Martha, and the list is endless. God is able to do mighty works of making right what has been wrong because while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. We are guilty, but this is the gospel, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Crucifixion was a method of displaying people in the most cruel circumstances possible to demonstrate publicly the power of the empire not just to kill, but to dehumanize and by so doing, to deter anyone who dared to think of defying Caesar. Talk about a deterrent. Cruel, inhuman, public, and prolonged torture. That's what it was. And the message was that this will happen to you too if you dare to raise your hand against the emperor. Crucifixion was a ritual of humiliation. It's almost impossible for us to imagine, really, but in Roman times, everyone has seen a crucifixion. In addition to the physical pain and the, the shame of naked exposure, the victim was deliberately dehumanized to the point of being unrecognizable, a public lynching. It's important that we understand the extreme shaming that the Son of God underwent on the cross. 
And one criminal said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What made him think that Jesus had a kingdom? What and how exactly did he surmise that? Perhaps he was able to read the inscription that Pilate wrote over Jesus' head, the King of the Jews. You and I are placed today in the position of beholding Jesus on the cross and searching for the answer. Whether he is or is not the King of a kingdom. The convicted lawbreaker make the essential move. He placed himself in the hands of Jesus Christ. Think about that. And Jesus said to the condemned man hanging next to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The two important words here in this passage, I think, are with me. Today you will be with me in paradise. That's the key. Paradise is where Jesus is, and being in paradise is being with Him. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. Just to be in the presence of Jesus forever with Him is paradise. And with Him in paradise is fullness of joy. John 19, verses 26 and 27 says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. There is no other way to be a disciple of Jesus than to be in communion with other disciples of Jesus Christ. Instead of making us independent and self-centered, He makes us mutually interdependent and other-directed. The night before He died, He washed His disciples' feet. We talked about that last night. We enacted that last night. He told Him in John chapter 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then he prayed in John chapter 17, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as you and I are one. The love that breaks down barriers, the love that endures all things, the love that forgets self and focuses entirely on the well-being of the beloved community, that is the love of the Father and the Son for each other and the love of the Son for us. This is not abstract. It is worked out in self-giving. The love that Christ enacts and commands for His followers cannot be enacted in in isolation. A person who says, Jesus and me, we've got our own thing going on, is sadly lacking in his understanding of what it means to abide in Jesus Christ. Dorothy Day, the respected, edgy, Roman Catholic writer and activist, said repeatedly, you cannot practice love without community. The culture around us focuses on my time, my space, myself. We are urged by the world on a daily basis to be good to ourselves, develop ourselves, and believe in ourselves. Now, I'm not here to say that all of that is bad. But whenever we look at the gospel, we're asked to look a different way. 
I encourage us to think about the gospel message, which is different than that. Think of participating in something that is always for the good of the whole. That's the church when it's working the way it's supposed to work. That is why Cyprian of Carthage said 1,800 years ago, you cannot have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother. Think about that. It's challenging to preach this because it's so easy to dismiss the church when it is out of hand. All we have to do is read the headlines these last years to discover abuse after abuse. The church can break your heart with its sin, and I am sure it has for all of us. It's broken my heart a few times this week. Do you know why the church isn't perfect? Because you and I belong to it. It's easier to say, I can be a Christian without the church. But to be honest with you, that's missing the point. It's not understanding and not living in to actually what Jesus taught. This is to renounce a most basic and fundamental message of Jesus throughout his ministry. And as John dramatizes it, it is, to, it is shown forth most of all from the cross in Jesus' death. He is giving you to me and me to you. The disciples of Christ today, as 2,000 years ago, are drawn together in mutual love of our Lord. Despite all of the church's shortcomings, the church is still the body of Jesus Christ. So much more could be said about that, but I'm limited on time. I think I've shared this story with you several times before when Dawn and I moved to London, England and we planted a church. We didn't use the word Christians when people asked who we were. We said we were Christ followers. And we didn't use the word church. We said we were a community. And you know what's something ironic about that? It was those who were not Christians, those who were Christians that were coming back to Jesus, and those who... Uh, we're Christians that called us on the carpet and said, stop denying who you are. You are the church. Say you're the church. And they said, if you're not happy with what the church is, then become the kind of church Jesus wants you to be. Boy, I tell you what, being rebuked actually from the world was a wake-up call. So that's exactly who we told people we were. We are the church and we are Christians. Jesus said from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The condition of hopelessness is profoundly challenging in the church. We felt downhearted as many people watched hopelessly on Monday, April the 15th, as Notre Dame and Paris burned. The place from which distance in France is measured. So many people, religious and non-religious, were in tears as the great cathedral burned. A part of themselves was on fire, aflame. The horror of it lie in watching beauty and tradition burn. The delegate spire toppling into an inferno of 800-year-old beams. There was the best of humankind as powerful as expression as exists of the sacred going up in black smoke. This majestic building survived the French Revolution and Nazi occupation but now in ashes. The loss of human life is terrible to behold, 
but the destruction of beauty may be no less so. In a time of anxiety, of ugliness, and hatred, and lies, the blaze felt terrifying. People were in a trance, watching the fire boil inside the shell of a cathedral, the cathedral walls like a cauldron. What would we feel like if this cathedral burned? What would we be doing? How would we feel? This is only not even yet 100 years old. This is 800 years old. How disappointing, and this isn't in my notes and something I didn't plan to talk about, how disappointing that some Protestants took the advantage to place all over Facebook taking shots at our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters and calling the idolatrous people and on and on and on wanting to name their their sins. How sad. And I'm trying to practice good Christian etiquette on Facebook. And it was very difficult. But I did challenge a friend. And then the next morning, I saw that my post was conveniently deleted. The scene was solemn and reverent, but there were feelings of hopelessness. It seemed impossible that something so monumental could be so fragile. Civilization is fragile. Democracy is fragile. Just like that spiral. When a universal reference goes up in smoke, we're reminded that life is fragile. Hopelessness drives people to darkness and depression and loneliness and for some, even suicide. Hopelessness can also be called despair. The word despair means without hope. What then do we say when someone from the Christian community loses hope to such a degree that he or she wants to destroy themselves? On the cross, Jesus Christ appears to have experienced the condition of hopelessness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As a pastor, one thing I know when I talk to people who struggle with depression, darkness, hopelessness, or despair, it's this. Steer towards the pain. Why? Because we don't abandon people to the despair. On that good Friday outside the the city walls of Jerusalem, Jesus consciously and deliberately steered, steered toward the pain. What he endured that day was an abandonment. He felt hopelessly cut off. And when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he begged God to spare him what lie ahead. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he arose from his knees, he set his face like a flint. And he steered toward the pain. Never challenged his, excuse me, changed his course and followed the path all the way down into hell. The hell of being utterly abandoned by God and humanity. Abandoned into the icy grip of sin and death. Abandoned into a universe without pity, without love, without God. Hell is the absence of hope, the absence of love, the absence of light, the absence of God. And on the cross, Jesus experienced the absence of God and steering toward the pain, he descended into that hell. 
he experienced the absolute worst. And on the third day, he emerged with the battle flag of victory, Christ the Conqueror. Light and life returned with him. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, no matter how dark it is, that can negate the victory of Jesus Christ over death and hell. Now, I'm knowing I'm moving a little bit into Easter, and I'm not supposed to do that, but I think it's a little bit okay. We have to have a little hope, don't we? For us here today who struggle with despair and isolation and depression and darkness and profound discouragement, listen to these words penned by Paul in Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus said, I thirst. The Lord says to the good Samaritan in John four fourteen that he gives a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Samaritan in uh, John's story is enslaved by her own appetites and her subsequent isolation. But she is nevertheless dependent upon coming to the well for water. When Jesus meets her, we are told he is weary from his long walk in the heat of the sun. And the Lord has uh, taken full human nature upon himself and experiences weakness just like us. Thirst is perhaps the ultimate human weakness. We can do without food for a while, but we can't do without water. The gift of a a cup of water in Mark's gospel is held up as the proper response to human need. And it says this, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose his reward. Yet when Jesus was nailed to the cross, no one gave him so much as a single sip of water. Even the basic, most element, elemental human comfort is denied him. So the water from Jesus' side, together with life-giving blood of the Lamb, is the metaphor for the eternal life that God gives to our human race. Our race that sees more than ever to be bent on destroying itself and its beautiful planet when God wants to come and renew all things. Human beings cannot live without water. In an age to come, in the city of God that will come down from heaven, there is a river of unquenchable love bought for us by the agony and thirst of the only begotten Son of God on the cross. Come to this water. Come to His cross. Come to His blood shed for you and find for yourself the gift of love that never fails, the living water that never runs out. Jesus said, It is finished. Many think this means it's over, it's the end. However, it means a little bit more than that. John emphasizes all through his gospel that Jesus is never the passive victim. He is not on the cross by mistake. He is not, as we, are, we often um, say, just the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. It is precisely on the cross that the work of Jesus is carried through to its completion. So what then is the resurrection? We'll talk more about that on Easter. 
But it is the vindication of the crucified one. The resurrection doesn't cancel out the crucifixion as if it were only a passing episode to be noted briefly on the way to Easter. Good Friday is not optional. The resurrection finds its meaning from the cross. The resurrection does not reverse the crucifixion. The resurrection vindicates the crucifixion. The work of Jesus is brought to completion on the cross. That's what it is finished means. The Father and the Son together in the power of the Holy Spirit are saying to us, the work that the Father gave the Son to accomplish is consummated, completed, finished as He dies. And the resurrection does not cancel out the cross. The resurrection verifies and confirms that the cross was the main event. The life work of Christ is brought to its consummation. He has fulfilled the Scripture. To all who receive Him, He has given the power to become the children of God. He has offered Himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has created a new community, the church. The life of a Christian is lived in the tension between my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This is the message that we take with us when we leave this afternoon. What does it mean to live between those two sayings of of Jesus from the cross, sayings that seem to be so contradictory? Pure New Testament theology has everything to do with living life on the edge between this age of sin and death and the age to come. Between the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the second return of Jesus Christ. The now, but the not yet of the kingdom of God. Watchfulness for the signs of the kingdom of God in the midst of tribulation and battle is one of the chief characteristics of the Christian life. And that's why we pray for more of the kingdom that will be what is in heaven, what will be when He comes again, to experience more of that on this earth today now. It is for this purpose that the Son of God became incarnate. We cannot make it on our own without divine help and aid. These two sayings of Jesus teach us the right way to position ourselves for the duration of our lives. We have been redeemed and we give Him ourselves. We commend our spirits for His purposes and for His mission. The time of our visitation and peace comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. With His shameful, chaotic, horrible death, He has gone to the very bottom, to the darkest and deepest place of ruin. And He has planted there a sign that says, Rescued. It is a sign of love, the love of the Creator for the ruined creation. The love of a Savior for a ruined people. Yes, of course, it all has to be worked out. The victory has to be implemented. But it's done. It's completed. It's finished. And the words of St. Paul, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Today, we celebrate the death of a resurrection, or excuse me, of a crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord, King, and Savior. We adore you, O Christ, and we thank you, because by your holy cross, you have redeemed the world.
Today we find our strength in the tree of life. On Good Friday especially, I am reminded that I am a sinner saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. I am a disciple who is running away from the cross, and yet I am being pulled back by its grace. I am Peter denying Christ and needing his restoring love. I am Pilate condemning him. I am the crowd mocking him. I'm Mary Magdalene crying for him because he saved my life and delivered me. On Good Friday, I'm lying at the foot of the cross. I'm looking up into his eyes and witnessing the pain. I'm looking at his mother Mary and I have to look away. How can she bear this? She is the mother of God, the mother of the church because she is the mother of Christ. On Good Friday, I'm confused and I'm wondering. I'm listening and I'm not fully understanding. On Good Friday, I'm finally aware that I'm, after all, a human being. A fallen human being that needs to be saved. And He is saving me. On Good Friday, I'm listening. And I hear Him say, it is finished. The sacrifices are ended. He offered Himself once for all to save us and to heal us and to end our constant need of offering our own sacrifices. We humans kept trying to appease the God who loves us. So he came here himself and allowed us to sacrifice himself. He ended it. He offered us his salvation even when we didn't think that we needed anyone to save us. On Good Friday, I sit with that reality in a darkened church with you. Gathered around the stark, empty altar of God. I wear a black cassock. I'm a desperate, confused, loved, and accepted child of God. Questioning. Broken. Doubting. Grieving. But hopeful. He's dead. The light is out. We are waiting. But it isn't the end. We are a people of hope.